The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There are definite signs in this document that this investigation is going to take a while. And one of them is the sheer volume of situations where they found out that uh, something wasn't true. Each of those is going to require an interview with, you know, half a dozen people to kind of forensically reconstruct how this particular document, and remember David's point that there are a lot of documents, right? How this particular classified document ended up not in the storage room, but in the desk. How this particular one didn't get produced the first time, then didn't get produced the second time. They're gonna wanna reconstruct that at a very detailed level, and that's gonna take some time. But I think they all but said in this filing that they mean to indict Donald Trump. And I I think at this point, something would have to happen to wreck the investigation in order for that not to be the outcome. I'm Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 1st, 2022. On Tuesday night, running up against the 11.59 p.m. deadline, the Justice Department filed its 40-page motion opposing Donald Trump's request that a special master be appointed to oversee the handling of documents seized at Mar-a-Lago. To wade through that meaty document and its implications, I was joined by Lawfare Editor-in-Chief Ben Wittes, COO and publisher David Priest, and Senior Editors Quinta Jurassic and Scott Anderson for a special Twitter Spaces event in front of a live virtual audience. It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 1st, unpacking the Justice Department's opposition to the Trump team's special master request. First, I would love to turn to our reporter of the day, Quinta, who uh, will do a little scene setting for us. What are we dealing with here? What is this document? Why did they file it? What does it say? Let us know. Sure. So this document is a a somewhat odd beast because it's a filing in a somewhat odd case. Uh, So after there was this initial warrant served, Donald Trump filed a I don't even know what what it was really. Um, it, it wasn't styled as a as a complaint. Um, it was just kind of announcing to a different judge um, in the U.S. District Court in the Southern District of Florida, not the magistrate judge who had signed up on the warrant, that he had complaints essentially about the way that DOJ had carried this out. Um, that he wanted a special master, um, essentially someone who would be appointed by the court to go in and segregate material that was privileged, a little ambiguity as to whether he had in mind attorney-client privilege or executive privilege so that uh, the FBI wouldn't look at it. So this this filing by DOJ is essentially a very lengthy response to that filing by Trump. And it really reads like DOJ is kind of, you know, they've been very quiet publicly, but they have been sort of using the opportunity Trump gives them to speak through their filings. Um, And so this is a quite long uh, 36-page filing with additional appendices, essentially laying out their version of events in terms of what was happening in the Mar-a-Lago investigation, how it started, how it's going, and I think it's it's quite a damning document. So essentially, the, the story that's told here Again, this is sort of in the framework of DOJ arguing uh, over whether or not uh, a special master should be appointed, whether or not material should be returned to Trump. This sort of raises a, a lot of, I think, pretty dry, it's fair to say, legal issues. So the meat of the filing is really this story about the investigation. 
And the story that DOJ tells, I think, is extremely damning for Trump. They're essentially walking through the fact that he had what appears to be an enormous amount of classified material at Mar-a-Lago. They include in an attachment um, a photo uh, to show some of that classified material as as an exhibit. You can see there are cover sheets um, labeled secret SCI and top secret SCI. So it's pretty clear at this point um, that there really was material that was labeled as classified. And they also note in the filing that, you know, despite Trump's statements that he had declassified all of this material, that it certainly didn't seem like the folks at Mar-a-Lago were treating it as such. And then I think the other really important story that's being told here is a story about potential obstruction certainly a lack of full cooperation uh, or candor with the government on the part of the Trump team, that what happens is sort of that again and again, the government shows up and says, look, like we really need these documents. And the Trump team in various forms says, oh, sure, sure, you know, here, here you go. And then it turns out that they haven't handed everything over. It turns out that they said that you know, documents were only in one particular storage room. But eventually, when uh, the FBI served the search warrant, that it turns out that there are actually classified documents in Trump's office in a desk drawer in that office, along with some expired passports of his. They say that they have evidence that uh, boxes were moved out of the facility, that they that they would search. Um, so really, the story that that seems to be told here is one in which the Trump team, at the very least, was uh, not being helpful. And the Justice Department seems to think we're intentionally obstructing this investigation and concealing these documents from the Justice Department. And I think um, that is just an incredibly damning story. Yeah, thanks, Quinta. I'm sure the rest of the team is chomping at the bit here to get in. But before we do that, just so we're all on the same page, could you remind everyone, you know, what is a special master and, and, and maybe why if there is an answer, the Trump team wanted to appoint one. Sure. So uh, a special master in this context is uh, someone who is appointed by the court to sort of carry out some kind of action. Um, in this case, what the what Trump is asking is for the, the special master to be appointed to essentially go through all of these documents that the Justice Department has obtained sort through them and make sure that the Justice Department returns any privileged or private material. Um, I think there's a there's a kind of a question about whether or not a special master would even be useful in this context. I believe the DOJ had a filing a couple days ago indicating that they have essentially sorted through most, if not all, of the documents already and have segregated out uh, potentially attorney-client privileged material. But that's what Trump is asking for. Great. Now I want to turn to uh, our very own David Priest to speak to the potential severity of this. You know, just how bad is it to have this kind of information uh, stored away in your desk as a former president? How big of a deal is this in terms of national security? I don't know what adjective to use. I'm, I'm kind of running out here. Uh, big works, right? You could also use huge or massive. Listen, a lot of classified material cases that I was aware of when I was working at CIA or the State Department or that have had some publicity sense involve a document or a a set of documents. In the case of Hillary Clinton, you recall from 2016, there were issues of some paragraphs or pages marked with a C in parentheses for confidential, uh, among others. And this, the scope of this, as relayed in the document that dropped overnight, is just amazing. When you go through the original 15 boxes, the responsive material to the subpoena, the material that is now being described from the actual seizure, it's an immense amount of actual documents. And then each document, in some cases, multiple pages of highly classified material. And the type of material, I mean, we are seeing HCSP controls on some of this information in the the photo. We're seeing descriptions of top secret compartmented information. This is not something minor. This This is not something that you can shrug off as, oh, it was just an inadvertent paper that slipped in between others uh, on his desk right before leaving office on inauguration day. This is massive, and there's nothing quite like it 
in presidential history. Both Ben and I, from different angles, have written books about presidents behaving badly. And there's nothing that quite holds a candle to this one. Yeah, you preempted my my precedent question. Um, so I want to turn now to Ben. Ben Wittes, can you give us the big picture here about what this means for the criminal investigation? Uh, can you portend uh, what, you know, whether this means an indictment of Trump or others? Maybe give a little picture into internal DOJ machinations as far as you can surmise. Kind of give us give us the big picture here. Sure. So I can't give you uh, uh, insight into internal DOJ machinations because I'm not privy to any of them. But I will say that I have never seen a document remotely like this filed that does not precede an indictment. And the department here quite unnecessarily told a great deal of about its investigation. Uh, it told a lot about the evidence behind its investigation. None of that was necessary to respond to what are essentially trivial legal arguments on the part of the former president. The only reason to do this was as a show of strength to say, hey, we have a lot of evidence and it's really serious. And we have evidence on all three of the statutes that we cited in here. So let us tell you some stuff about it. As Quinta describes, we're going to show you evidence that there was a whole lot of intentionality associated with the false statements uh, that were made in the context of these negotiations. As David describes, we're going to show you a lot of uh, material about how serious the underlying documents were. And by the way, uh, we're also going to tease uh, little bits of evidence about Trump's personal conduct, though we're not actually saying anything about Donald Trump's personal conduct. Uh, but we'll mention that some of the material was found intermingled in his personal effects in his desk and let you draw the conclusions from there. When the department talks like this, the department is not a big into bravado. And when it talks like this, it is basically saying, we're gonna you know, come forward with a very serious set of measures. Uh, the department will now, having done this, look extremely foolish if it does not ultimately indict Donald Trump. And I think they, the people who uh, wrote this document would have been well aware of that when they wrote it. And so I take this as a sign that they are serious about not merely about reclaiming this, these documents, as we have discussed on previous spaces and podcasts. Not, it's not simply about recapturing. It's also about bringing a case. The only thing I would say that cuts a little bit in the other direction is that there are definite signs in this document that this investigation is going to take a while. And one of them is the sheer volume of situations where they found out that uh, something wasn't true. Each of those is going to require an interview with, you know, half a dozen people to kind of forensically reconstruct how this particular document, and remember David's point that there are a lot of documents, right? How this particular classified document ended up not in the storage room, but in the desk. How this particular one didn't get produced the first time, then didn't get produced the second time. They're going to want to reconstruct that at a very detailed level, and that's going to take some time. But I think they all but said in this filing, that they mean to indict Donald Trump. And I, I think at this point, something would have to happen to wreck the investigation in order for that not to be the outcome. Just, just one additional point of context here that I think is worth bearing in mind, which is why the Department of Justice had to lay out its case like this. Because um, we've seen the Justice Department really position itself, I think, very consciously to be very reluctant about bringing forward more information of this case time and time again. Remember, initially, the Justice Department was the one wary about disclosing the search warrant. Eventually, when the Trump signed off and said, oh, I want to disclose it, they said, OK, if you want to, that's fine. Initially, they didn't want to come forward with the affidavit underlying the search warrant. 
went to the magistrate judge and media came forward and said, no, we want it. They said, okay, well, here's a redacted version. Here's the reasons we're redacting big parts of it. A lot of it was redacted. They, they've been very restrained about this, I think, because of the obvious sensitivities of this case, particularly because we're nearing an election uh, and, uh, you know, the memory of decisions regarding prior to the 2016 election made by the FBI about disclosing information, I think, weighs heavily. We've seen some reporting today in the New York Times uh, that that factors into Garland's thinking from people who are supposedly close to him. In this case, they are specifically responding to a brief filed the other week by President Trump's legal counsel that spends the first two thirds of the brief completely slandering the Justice Department's investigation, making the case that all of this is simply a politically motivated uh, abuse of power accusing people, the FBI of violating the Fourth Amendment, of pursuing an overly broad search, of maliciously targeting President Trump. A header of that brief is something to the effect of the government has never treated Donald J. Trump fairly. And it is in light of rebutting that incredibly broadside attack on the Justice Department, the FBI's conduct, that has led the FBI to start to lay out its case like this. You know, this doesn't make Donald Trump look good, but the Justice Department, I think, to its credit, has been very conscious about not trying to bring information to the public uh, that makes Donald Trump look bad unless it's actually absolutely forced to do so. And I think this is a case where Donald Trump, once again, forced their hand in doing so to his own, you know, his own against his own self-interest because of the broadside attack. They had to lay out in real detail, look, here's the reason we're doing this investigation. Here's what we found. Here's why we think we have to keep pursuing it. And, you know, those details are really damning for Donald Trump. But it, again, I, I think we need to bear in mind, Justice Department isn't putting this out there of its own volition. This is in response to what former President Trump has already filed. And that's the reason it had to lay out this case this way. And to follow up quickly back with Ben, Ben, you mentioned that this indicates that this could take a while. Um, do, you, do you hazard a guess of a more specific time frame? I don't. Um, I'm conscious of how much we don't know about the investigation. And one of the things that we don't know is how many of the questions that this brief poses are actually already answered in the Justice Department's investigation and how many are not. For example, the department describes multiple sources having told them about document movement and concealment, uh, multiple sources of, of evidence. Now, that could mean that they've already done detailed interviews with large numbers of people and in fact, a lot of the work is already done, or it could mean that they got a few tips and they're really in a more preliminary stage of the investigation. They had crossed the probable cause threshold. They needed to go get the documents. So they went and did it. But now is when the investigation part really, you know, now that they've recovered the material is where the investigation really gets down to brass tacks and where they really try to do, figure out all the I's that need to be dotted and T's that need to be crossed. I suspect we are more in the latter situation than in the former situation, partly because the Justice Department official, Jay Bratt, uh, specifically told Judge Reinhardt uh, the other day uh, in open court that they were in the an early stages of the investigation. So my suspicion is that they actually have a ways to go. But I could be wrong about that. You know, I do think Scott's point about they, they, they are most unlikely to do anything public in the two to three months before an election, even though Technically, the rule does not apply to this situation. That said, I think they will, they will act like it does. Um, and so I think you're, you're likely to see the thing go dormant until after the midterms. And in that time, I think they're likely to uh, have done a lot of work. It's just not the kind of work that involves banging on doors or uh, indicting people. I want to get into some of the, the legal mechanics of the uh, criminal case. So, Scott, I want to turn to you and, and anyone else can feel free to jump in. Can you walk us through some of the, the issues that have been brought up so far in terms of maybe the Espionage Act, uh, in terms of uh, obstruction, you know, breaking down the Trump legal team's declassification argument? Can you walk us through some of those some of those issues? 
Yeah, sure. Uh, so anybody who's been following this case at this point probably knows there are three main criminal statutes that the Justice Department cites in its search warrant and the search warrant affidavit and that the magistrate judge found there to be probable cause that related evidence was to be found on Mar-a-Lago. It doesn't say who did the crime in question, but it's tied to Mar-a-Lago uh, and be found there. Of course, they did end up finding that evidence. Uh, and the three provisions in question, one, 18 U.S.C. 2071 is a century old statute that really deals with the mishandling and destruction of public records. This one's kind of pretty easy to make the case for. Uh, it, it really boils down to the fact that these are public records that were being held in a way that was not authorized. Uh, these are under the Presidential Records Act, as this brief really lays out pretty carefully. Very clearly, the executive branch is supposed to retain custody of former presidential records. And so that seems to be the most clean cut of kind of a three statutes in that regard. The second statute, 18 U.S.C. 1519, is an obstruction statute. It actually was enacted as a kind of a reaction to some of the Enron scandal and related scandals uh, you know, two decades ago, and usually is often applied in kind of white collar contexts. But it really applies to any sort of falsification, manipulation, or degradation of a federal record with the intent to obstruct an investigation. And we see a lot of that in this particular brief. That, and that is, I think, pretty new um, that we see. We see clear sense that there were repeated efforts by the FBI to make very clear to Trump's office. A lot of the communications are sent to the office of Donald J. Trump and communicated by agents on the behalf of that office saying, can you assert you've completed the search? And they provide a you know signed statement saying, we completed the search, we found no more confidential documents. And then they say, we have additional evidence that shows that was a, a lie. Falsifying that record and providing it to the government may well fall under 18 U.S.C. 1519. There may have been efforts to manipulate or uh, adjust some of these documents. Uh, you know, my guess is that something like perhaps removing classification markings, that also could be an issue under the statute. If it was intended to make it look like it was unclassified, was it when it wasn't? All these things kind of fit into this question of intent that really gets laid out here because this is the clearest articulation we've seen to date of the interactions between the FBI and the people involved in this, including former President Trump, that lays out what they knew when and therefore provides the best circumstantial evidence of their intent because intent you can only prove circumstantially. The third statute the one you, is one you mentioned, the Espionage Act. That's 18 U.S.C. 793-D, if I recall, no, E, I believe, is the supervision that they ended up relying on, which basically says these are national defense information that's held by somebody not authorized to hold them and retained with, you know, knowledge that it's information the government would hold secret and that they don't have the authorization to hold it. Usually this is applied to classified information. This is where the declassification argument arguably has some relevance, although I've, as I've written about for lawfare in the past, I don't, I think those arguments are, are a bit overstated. It's not clear to me. It's clearly certainly dispositive or highly relevant as to whether it's classified in this case or not. The main point here is that we know from this memo now, this briefing, that Trump's arguments about that declassification are new. This is not something that they repeated over and over again early on to say, oh, no, these aren't really classified. You know, repeatedly, the FBI told them, hey, these are classified documents. You need to give these back to us. And they kind of accepted that. Uh, and certainly they didn't make any arguments about um, the initial waves of classified documents. They did hand back to them, uh, saying that those had somehow been declassified. So, again, this really undermines this argument that somehow President Trump declassified any of this stuff because there's no evidence that he did so. He has yet to produce any evidence. And it's not even clear that he believes he did so or came up with that sort of narrative fact, except for pretty late in the course of this investigation, all of which is a bit of a problem. And we saw in the affidavit at the time the FBI conducted the search, they were aware of allegations by Cash Patel in the media and one allusion, but never clearly stated by Trump's counsel in a communication suggesting maybe they may have been declassified. That's about as close as it got at the time that the uh, search warrant was, was kind of applied for. And so the magistrate judge and the FBI knew this was a possibility Presumably, they did some due diligence to see if this was the case, and they didn't find any certainly record of this declassification. That really puts the onus, uh, again, on those saying that somehow these records were declassified. Usually, courts look for some evidence of a process to determine what the president's intent was, uh, particularly this president, whose past utterances about disclosing documents has led to questions as to something was declassified or not. Um, and courts have looked for those kind of official measures to see if it was declassified at the direction of Trump's own White House, his own chief of staff has testified in other cases saying, this is how you know when we declassify something, we'll go through the regular procedures. So all that is a pretty damning case laid out here. The gap in all of this, is, as Ben's already alluded to a little bit, is Trump's direct knowledge and involvement. 
Trump himself doesn't communicate that directly, at least in the information we have here. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence that he was directly involved, right? Like we know from this document for the first time, records were found in his desk. We know that records were found intermingled with his uh, personal expired passports and other personal documents. And that becomes really relevant because later, beyond the factual component and the legal component of this brief, the Justice Department points out that we collect you know, evidence of documents around or containers which contain the evidence we were seizing because that itself is often probative and serves as evidence of how it was handled or mishandled, who had access to it or not. That's connecting the dots here. This is all circumstantial evidence that former President Trump did, in fact, have access and was fully aware of what these documents were. I don't know if we've gotten to an airtight case of that yet. For that, you probably are going to need testimony from inside uh, Trump's circles. For that, maybe they have witnesses who can do that already. They haven't, you know, we haven't seen them lay out all the evidence they've collected from witnesses. They've avoided doing that because they're worried and are very clear they're worried about witnesses being identified by the public and then intimidated in some way. But still, that that doesn't quite get you to this thing without these witnesses. The other thing that they might be preparing to do, I think are likely preparing to do, is indicting some of the people around former President Trump who more clearly were involved in making false statements. And in doing that, they may persuade some of them to eventually flip on Donald Trump, provide that first-person testimony they need. Thanks for that, Scott. And I think, Quinta, you you probably have something to add here. Do you want to jump in? Sure, yeah. I was uh, thinking what Scott's point about Trump's personal involvement, I think, is, is really important. And I, I think I've said this before in previous Twitter spaces, but, uh, you know, one of the things that has always been a problem in previous uh, major investigations of misconduct by Trump has been the extent to which he was personally involved in anything that happened. Uh, you saw that in the Mueller investigation. You saw that in the first impeachment when it came to the extortion of Ukraine. Uh, and you see that now in January 6th, where there's this question of, you know, to what extent was Trump personally instigating the rally um, that then turned into violence. Um, and I think you see that here as well. And part of that, as we saw in the Mueller investigation, is that Trump doesn't use computers, to put it bluntly. Um, this is not a guy who leaves a paper trail. We know from them, again, from the Mueller report that he doesn't like his lawyers to take notes. And he's very good at phrasing instructions in a way that kind of dances on the line of saying something directly, like when he famously told Comey, he didn't say, you know, drop the Flynn case concerning the investigation into uh, former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. He said, I, I hope you can see your way clear to letting this go. And so I wouldn't be surprised if there was some similar ambiguity here uh, that he's able to kind of, you know, dance on that line. Um, that said, I do think that one thing that is really important to keep in mind is that previously, Trump was the president. And so a lot of in a lot of instances where there were there was ambiguity about his actions, legally speaking, it was sort of decided in his in his favor, because he had in many cases, the Article Two authority to do those things. Like so in the Comey example, he had the Article Two authority to tell the FBI director what to investigate and what not to investigate. So if you're thinking of charging that as obstruction, that's a much harder case. In this instance, I think what's really powerful and different about uh, this classified documents case is that he was not the president. Um, and so he doesn't have that sort of additional article to shield or excuse or whatever you want to call it. And so that that doesn't in itself get past this sort of firewall that he's so adept at creating around himself. But I do think that it is important when we think about the case and about how he's in many ways sort of trying to use that mantle of the presidency by invoking executive privilege, which doesn't make any sense because he's not the president anymore, in you know, suggesting that he has a, a right to hold on to those documents, all those kinds of arguments. Yeah, I'd like to build on a, a couple of things there from Quinta and from Scott. Uh, Quinta, I mean, that, that was great in terms of the fact that he's not the president. We, we seem to lose sight of this, that former presidents simply don't have access to this material except under two limited circumstances. And the document overnight did a great job of explaining one of those circumstances, which is the idea that the Presidential Records Act does allow a former president to have access to some presidential papers. And this document systematically destroys the argument that that governs in this case because of the way in which the 
papers were found there, that it did not go through the PRA-designated process for those papers. Uh, the other method, which is not brought up in these documents, of course, is that the current president gives classified material to the former president and authorizes them to see it, as most former modern presidents have done for their predecessors in, in limited cases for classified briefings and the like. And that's most definitely not the case here, as Joe Biden famously said, that he was not giving Donald Trump access to such information. Scott's point, I think, was particularly important and, and points to a second similar thing that happened in this document. Scott talked about the systematic de demolishment, <laughs> the demolition here of the claim, I already had declassified this. I think reading through these 30 plus pages, it is impossible to see a viable argument for I issued a declassification order because of all the things that would have been likely or would have been necessary to happen in the intervening 18 months that simply did not happen until that claim was made. But there's a similar claim out there that defenders of the former president are turning to that was also systematically destroyed here. And that is this idea of an out-of-control DOJ FBI witch hunt, that they were out to get this guy, that they came at him fast, they rushed to judgment, they didn't give time for the former president to explain himself and come up with materials. This document lays out time and time again the deference that is shown to the former president and the attorneys around the president. I mean, it is a Cirque de Soleil level bending over backwards to give the benefit of the doubt and extending deadlines over and over and over again. And to me, especially pages 12 and 13 of this document, if listeners haven't read the whole thing and you just want to read a couple of pages, read pages 12 and 13. And it's absolutely stunning the amount of material that is in here that there was time for the president, the former president and those around him to cough up. And time after time, they didn't. And in fact, this document shows the patience of the investigators going into this. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life. What would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills it can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. 
Visit BetterHelp.com slash Lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had Lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. David, thank you very much for that image of a bunch of lawyers in suits performing a Cirque du Soleil act. Um, <laughs> now I'll, I'll uh, actually want to turn to one of our associate editors, Catherine Pompilio, who will read the first of our audience questions. Hi. So uh, we have a question from uh, a user named Patently Awful, and they asked, I'm curious about the SCIF documents. Surely there are control mechanisms to check that they don't leave the secure viewing area. Who knew that these documents were being removed? There must be a robust audit trail for this. There's an assumption there that there is a robust trail for this. I'll tell you, in some cases, there are very robust mechanisms for information that goes to the president. Copies of the president's daily brief that go to the president are tracked very closely. At least they were in, in the time that I was working with it, and all indications are that they, they still would be. However, the paper flow in the White House is not just limited to that very special document. You've got the White House Situation Room that has access to highly classified information on a 24-7, 365-day basis, and that information can be provided to the National Security Advisor to present to the president, or the president can request it directly, 
the president can stop down. It's not that far to walk down to the Situation Room and get any classified information, not to mention what advisors like the Secretary of State or Kash Patel or anybody else is bringing in to the Oval Office for the president to see. Those, in theory, are tracked, but we do not have a good picture of how the White House Situation Room, the Executive Secretariat of the National Security Council, and the White House Chief of Staff and the people around him were handling paper flow in and out of the White House. In a normally functioning White House, that paper is tracked. There's clear evidence of what was going where, when. But I have a feeling, based on reporting we've seen on other issues not related to these documents, that the normal procedures were not necessarily followed to a T, and we might not know exactly how some of these documents got to him and when with that chaotic flow of paper in the White House. Yeah, I'll just add to that, that the classification system is really not meant to protect classified information from theft by the president. You know, the, 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 the classification system is a system designed to protect information that the president for national security reason or his designates for national security reasons wants to keep secret. And the assumption is that the, the president himself or herself is a responsible custodian of that information. The idea that the president might just dish you know, Israeli uh, operations uh, against ISIS to the Russian foreign minister in the Oval Office is not something the classification system is designed to protect against, nor is it obvious how it could actually protect against that. And similarly, the idea that the, the, the president might spirit information home with him by which I mean from the West Wing to the East Wing residence, and then it gets put in boxes and taken to his personal residence at the end of the presidency, that just isn't something that a normal White House has to contemplate because it isn't the way a normal president, and when I say a normal president there, I really mean all 44 other people who've ever been president, or at least the dozen and a half since the advent of the, the classification system. It just isn't something that we've ever really had to deal with before. And so I think this is just an area where looking for a the, the chains that can bind Donald Trump in his capacity as president is probably a fruitless endeavor. It's just an area where he's uh, uniquely incompatible with our assumptions about the nature of the office. I think we can go ahead and move on to the next question. Catherine, do you have another one uh, teed up for us? Yes. Um, from Chris Holst, how does the Presidential Records Act interface with our increasingly digital world? Is it the physical docs or the information embodied in the docs that the PRA gives to NARA? Can a f uh, former POTUS take away copies of presidential records if the originals get handed over to NARA? I'll take this one as an initial matter. Uh, so I think actually uh, the Presidential Records Act and the digital age coexist very nicely. And the evidence for that is the flawless transition between uh, President Bush, the second Bush, and President Obama. And then the uh, work that the Obama administration did under rather difficult conditions turning things over to President Trump. You know, in both of those cases, you had presidents who were committed to doing it right, whatever you think of either of the presidents as, as policy minds or presidents, uh, they took their responsibilities seriously and they left without, you know, they both operated in a highly digital world. And the degree to which we had access to Bush's presidential records exactly as we expected to or should have uh, expected to was on display when President Trump nominated Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. And, you know, all these presidential records, including uh, in one case, my correspondence with with Kavanaugh when he was in the White House counsel's office were available to be released 
because President Bush had respected the Presidential Records Act. And so I don't think there's any problem with the law, honestly. I think the problem here is that you had somebody who, either because of some kind of hoarding disorder or some other more malevolent instinct, simply didn't want to give back records that weren't his to keep. I, I won't ask if there's a, a hoarding defense to be made. Um, Catherine, could you read us the next question? Yes. Uh, so uh, somebody named Jordan asked, if you think it's helpful, can the panel address comparisons and differences with the former president's alleged conduct and Secretary Clinton's conduct with classified information and documents, which was found not to give rise to criminal charges? Well, I can hit the, the basics of this, and I'll ask others on the call uh, to fill in any details they want, but let's, let's keep it simple. In Hillary Clinton's case, uh, the examination was of a time when she was a government employee, Secretary of State. She had active security clearances, and the communications, which were not done in the ideal way, but the communications were with other people who also had security clearances. Those three things are different in this case. Donald Trump is not a government employee. Uh, he has not been a, an officer of the United States since January 2021. He does not have a security clearance of any kind. And there is no indication that this involved communications with, with others with security clearances. We don't know to whom these documents were transmitted. We don't know who had access. Presumably, that's a huge part of this investigation. But those elements are different. There's also a, a matter of pure volume. And that is something that the government mentions quite explicitly in this document overnight is the, the hundreds of documents, the hundreds, perhaps ultimately numbering to over a thousand pages of classified information, as opposed to, to a few. And then finally, in the case of the former Secretary of State, uh, once this was discovered, the level of cooperation, as opposed to the obfuscation and what appear to be lies, as demonstrated in this government document, there's clearly a difference in terms of the action once the discovery was made about the classified or potentially classified information. Yeah, I'll just amplify a couple of points related to that, two in particular. So in the case of Hillary Clinton, the issue really boils down to she was doing government business on a private server, probably shouldn't have been doing that at all for reasons related to the Presidential Record Act. But in addition, there were some issues, some classified material ended up uh, getting mixed in, uh, as by the way often happens uh, in unclassified systems uh, in government business. There's a little bit of cross mixture between the high side and the low side sometimes that you got to police against. You can't when it's uh, a private server. Uh, that said, she was doing government business. So the, I think the, the first big difference, as David alludes, is that one is a story of theft of government information. The other is a story of pretty clearly inadvertent mishandling of classified information. And the government is uh, pretty assiduous about distinguishing between those in prosecutorial settings anyway. Uh, the second difference, which I think is the much more important one, is the one that David mentioned last, which is uh, just the degree of non-cooperation. Hillary Clinton cooperated with the Justice Department's investigation. Uh, she cooperated uh, down to the level of sitting for an interview about it, conducted, if memory serves, by Pete Strzok, you know, Nobody would argue that her conduct in that episode was flattering to her, but she did not, you know, when material needed to be returned, there's no evidence that she hid anything in her desk. There's no evidence that she um, directed people to sign certifications or that her people did sign certifications that material had been returned when it wasn't. And of course, the volume of such material is huge. And so I think the, the, the basic difference is a difference between mishandling a relatively small volume of classified material 
and cooperating with the investigation of it and stealing a very large volume of classified information and refusing to classify and even obstructing the investigation of it. Yeah, I have kind of a, a meta point here on the this investigation compared to the, the Clinton investigation. Scott mentioned earlier, there's reporting on how DOJ is thinking about its communications to the public. And one of the things that uh, really jumped out at me from this report, which is a, a New York Times report, is a statement that the Justice Department is kind of leery of going down the road that James Comey uh, went down when it came to public pronouncements on the Hillary Clinton investigation, um, and that there's a, a desire to play it a little more straight. Obviously, they are using the opportunity to speak in, in these filings. But I found that interesting, just as a, a reminder of how much, you know, the, the echo of the Clinton investigation here is not just heard and the fact that it involves former president, presidential candidate, who uh, appears to have been possibly mishandling classified information. It's also echoing in terms of, you know, how the Justice Department is thinking about the case. Um, and, you know, in, in many ways, uh, we, we sort of still haven't gotten past the summer of 2016. Quinta, thank you for your lowercase m meta point, not capital letter M meta point. Catherine, did you want to read another audience cue? Yeah, I combined two questions, um, one from Irving Kagan and one from somebody named JT. And they said, if there are documents in Florida, why wouldn't a search be made in New Jersey or New York? Do you think that there are grounds for searching his other properties? Well, that really depends on information we don't have. We have hints here about things like and I believe, Ben, you cited this earlier from the report when the document said, through further investigation, the FBI uncovered multiple sources of evidence indicating that the response to the May 11th grand jury subpoena was incomplete and that classified documents remained at the premises. That's the premises of Mar-a-Lago. It implies, at least for the purposes of this filing, it implies that there, there were not multiple sources of evidence about the incomplete provision of documents that remained at other premises, or else there, there would have been similar searches uh, based on the history we can see. Now, can you do a search at other locations because of what you find in one? Absolutely, depending on what you find and how you find it and what other information you have. My reading of the tea leaves here is that they do not have the same level of witness support or evidence for that in, in order to enable it at this time. Yeah. So uh, just on a technical level, a search warrant requires a certain degree of particularity and uh, you have to be able to describe the basis on which you know or purport to know uh, as a matter of probable cause that the premises that you're searching contains the information that you believe will be there. That's evidence of uh, ongoing or past criminal activity or future criminal activity. And so it's not really enough to say, well, Trump's premises in Florida uh, yielded classified material, so therefore we should search Bedminster or Trump Tower. You really need something more uh, that would suggest that there would be evidence of criminal activity there. And apologies now for uh, showing a little preferential treatment, but we have an internal question from our digital media director, Claudia Swain. Uh, Claudia, do you want to go ahead and ask your question to the group? Yes, I do. Thank you so much. I wanted to ask Quinta this because she's the expert. So we all know that Trump was deplatformed from Twitter shortly after January 6th. What does it mean that Trump is posting about this on his platform, Truth Social, and everyone, like journalists and everyone else, are screenshotting it and putting it on Twitter anyway? So does deplatforming matter in this case, since his stuff still ends up here? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. So uh, for people who have remained uh, blissfully ignorant of Trump's, I guess they're not tweets, they're they're truths, uh, technically speaking, which does not mean that they actually contain truthful information. He's been truthing up a storm, saying that, you know, the, the, that the Justice Department is engaged in a witch hunt. I think recently he uh, re-truthed, I guess, a bunch of information from a QAnon promoting account before deleting it. 
really engaging in conduct that I think underlines why he was banned from Twitter in the first place. You know, that it's potentially really incendiary, um, potentially encouraging violence, uh, spreading falsehoods, all that good stuff. Um, so then there is this question, right, of, well, what should we do with that? So as, as Claudia says, if you've been following this on Twitter, you've probably seen a lot of reporters screenshotting those posts and putting them on Twitter. And so the question is then, well, does that uh, <laughs> defeat the purpose of banning him in the first place? Um, I think it's a complicated little question. I do think that, you know, I would argue that Trump's ban from Twitter has proven extremely effective in reducing his influence, not completely, but to, to a great extent. And it really is the case that, you know, posting something on Truth Social, which there's been a lot of reporting recently about how uh, the platform is really not in good shape. Not a lot of people are using it. The infrastructure doesn't really work. It just doesn't get anywhere near uh, the reach that a tweet of his on Twitter would would get with where he had, you know, millions and millions of followers. Um, and so I do think there's a fair argument that even if, you know, somebody, uh, you know, a political reporter, uh, not to pick on Politico specifically, reposts his tweet or his truth, that that is just, you know, the, the level of amplification that that gives is just so categorically less that it's really a different thing. On the other hand, there is a risk, of course, that if you, you know, repost that, that you're amplifying a, a falsehood or a call to violence. So I think it's a difficult question. I personally would say, I don't think there's really a, a clear cut and dried, you know, you should never post this kind of issue, that it's more of a, you know, one by one, is this, is this, posts, you know, of sufficient importance that people know that, you know, the former president is encouraging violence or something like that, that it, it merits being reposted on Twitter? Or is this something where we really just want to let him kind of shout into the well and have it disappear? I think it's a tough one. Thanks, Quinta. Uh, Catherine, back to you. Uh, sarcastic Fringe had asked, does t having Trump, his lawyers and his close advisors remain remain in the wild versus in confinement pose a national security threat? I can take a crack at that one. So first of all, there's no basis to confine somebody if they're not charged with a crime. And so the question's a bit academic. That said, were he charged with a crime, I can't imagine that he would not be released on his own recognizance. Because realistically, you're not going to you're not going to hold a former president without bail. And in any event, the standards for denying bail involve either him being a flight risk, which I don't think he is, uh, or him being uh, a danger to himself or others or to, really to others. And in this case, I suppose you could make a national security danger argument uh, based on spillage of information. but. There has not been evidence, at least not public, although people have speculated about it, that Trump has improperly disclosed classified information to people. I suppose it's, it's theoretically possible that if the government were aware of such activity, they could argue for detention on that basis, as they have with, uh, you know, people like, you know, people who have been suspected of, of, you know, Espionage Act violations in the past. That said, I think the question is, it's, it's, it's exceptionally unlikely to happen. And that, you know, to the extent that Trump, Trump's having access to classified information poses a national security risk, which it certainly does, that's a risk we absorbed in electing him and there's not that much to do about it now. Thanks, Ben. Catherine, back to you. Any more questions from the audience? Yeah, Tom asked, would this evidence lead to a trial by jury for Trump? If so, could the release of this info taint the jury so his team could declare a mistrial? Generally speaking, anybody charged under federal law with a crime is entitled constitutionally to a jury trial. Um, you can, there are possible people can waive it with the consent of the government. Um, you know, they'd have to do that, uh, I think, in writing, if I'm recalling correctly. Um, and in which case, you get a bench trial before a judge. Um, that poses certain administrative advantages. It can be a little more straightforward because you're dealing with classified information that might be easier. But it seems kind of dubious that that's something that 
President Trump or anyone else charged in this case would find worthwhile, I suspect, in my view. Um, so, yeah, I think a jury trial would be the most likely outcome, although not 100 percent, again, because they could sign on to a jury trial in theory, I suppose. No, sorry, a bench trial. Catherine, do we have perhaps one more question um, we can wrap up on? Yes, we have one more. How likely is it that the Department of Justice has information about what Trump has been doing with these documents? So that is a matter of a lot of speculation, as I suspect the questioner knows. I would say it is almost certain that they have some theory of the case. And the reason is that there are these multiple sources of information, of evidence that have come forward or somehow to say that these documents are being moved. And the FBI has been, you know, uh, talking to people about this since February or, or January and probably since significantly before then, because they keep finding stuff out. And I suspect that at, at, at some point anyway, uh, they've had the opportunity to say, what is he doing with that, with those? And the people, some people around him are clearly talking. And so the interesting question to me is whether they know the answer to that question. Is it primarily a hoarding issue, uh, hoarding dirt on his political enemies? Is it primarily a mementos thing or is it something else? And I, I, I think the, the question probably turns on whether the people around him know the answer to that question. If they do, I suspect the FBI has gotten wind of it. It may be that it's the subject more of rumors than of knowledge among that group, too, in which case it could be a lot less clear. We'll leave it there. Thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Thanks, everyone, for tweeting your questions. Thanks so much. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. And while you're at it, grab some Lawfare swag at thelawfarestore.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell. And your audio engineer for this episode was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.